The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There is a small village up in northern Canada in the Newfoundland area, and they are a fishing village. There are little fishing boats and fishing vessels that leave and go offshore and fish. And uh, that is not anything special to us. We live on the coast as well. There's a lot of fishing down here in South Florida. In fact, we have the Fishing Hall of Fame down here in our, in our city. And so that might not seem uh, that impressive, except for the fact that they, the part of the Atlantic Ocean that they are on is what's called Iceberg Alley. And so when they go out fishing, unlike if you go out fishing down here in South Florida, they have to navigate and dodge icebergs as they're going out to fish. Now you say, okay, that's interesting. I mean, what's the big deal about navigating icebergs? I mean, just don't run into one. I mean, what's the big deal there? Well, it might be a bigger deal if one day you woke up and you looked out your window and you saw this. Check this out. This little village, a couple years ago, they woke up and an iceberg, a gigantic iceberg, had run aground a little ways offshore. And they estimated that that mountain of ice ran something like 150 feet tall. And you can see it's a, uh, it looks like a giant um, square. So it looks like it's maybe 150 feet wide as well. And I want you to imagine you're on one of those little fishing boats and you're going out near that iceberg and you just look up at the sheer wall of ice, like a cliff of ice, 150 feet in the air. I mean, that's like something like 12 stories tall. And you see this massive just mountain of ice. I mean, that would immediately make you and your small little fishing boat feel very, very small. And then you remember the one thing, the most famous thing about icebergs, now, what's that phrase? You're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. And that what you are witnessing with this massive mound of ice is only 10% of the iceberg. There's another 90% of that iceberg underneath the surface of the water. Imagine like how intimidatingly large that is. Imagine how small you would feel in that moment. Now, maybe you say, actually, uh, I can kind of relate to Iceberg Alley because I feel like in my life right now, I feel like I'm just navigating past one collision after the next. I feel like there's one iceberg after the next that are all threatening to sink me. And maybe you walked in here today and you're trying to avoid a collision uh, in your marriage or in a relationship, or you're trying to avoid a, a collision, a medical collision or maybe it's a financial collision or something at work and you say, look, I feel like my life has been just trying to navigate past these icebergs, trying to stay afloat. Well, if that's where you're at, if that's how you walked in today, I'm sure that in some, some shape or, or form, each one of us are trying to navigate past something in our life. Then what I would suggest is the most important thing, the best thing we could do in this moment is have an encounter with something so much more immeasurably immense than the problem we're facing. We're going to look at a story today 
of a, a guy in the Bible who had very turbulent situation in his life. A lot of insecurity, a lot of worry, a lot of panic, a lot of fear. But he had an encounter with something so much bigger than his circumstances. He had an unusual encounter with God. Now, I don't know where your journey is with God. You may be here, you may be watching online, and you may say, look, I've been following God for a long time. I know Jesus, I've been walking with God. Maybe you say, look, I'm just starting, I've got a lot of questions. Or maybe you say, look, I'm not even sure I believe in God. Wherever you're at, I think this story, as we look at it, it's gonna help us encounter God in a fresh new way and help us realize he is immeasurably more immense than we can imagine. And maybe we've only just experienced the very tip of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to God. We're gonna look at a story that takes place in the book of Isaiah. If you have a Bible or Bible app, go to Isaiah chapter six. We're gonna look in verse one. While you're turning there, let me just get you caught up to speed on our series. In part one of Unsinkable, what we looked at last week was this idea of the nature of truth itself, which there is a lot of tension in our world right now about the nature of truth. There's a lot of tension in our culture because on one hand, We're convinced as a culture that truth is objective. It's fixed, it is reality, it is external, and the best thing we can do is to submit to that truth, otherwise we're just delusional. On the other hand, we're often convinced that truth is subjective. And so there's other parts of our life where we say, no, I find truth on the inside, and so truth actually submits to me. And so we say it's subjective, it's inside rather than it's objective and outside. And so there's this tension because we kind of believe both. So on one hand, we believe truth is objective. And we have these life experiences that we would say absolutely truth is objective. It's it's external. We have to submit to truth. So like, for example... I think it's time to just come out and say it. And I, you know, it brings me no joy to say this, but I, I think it's time. The Miami Dolphins are not going to the Super Bowl this year, okay? And I, I, I know that that may bring pain to some of you like it brings pain to me, but let, let's just come right out and say it because to persist on in thinking that they might, that is just delusional. I mean, there's just some things you just have to accept as reality, okay? Another situation. I want you to, to imagine you broke your arm. And when I say break your arm, like really, like it's hanging in a weird position it's not supposed to be hanging in, Okay? And you go to the doctor and you show up there and the first thing he does is he gives you some meds to help you with the excruciating pain. And after a few minutes, you're like, I feel great right now. Like, this is amazing. And so the doctor comes up to you and says, all right, here's what's going to happen next. This is going to be a long journey, buddy. You got, I got to set your arm, okay? We got to put it in a cast. You're going to be in that cast for a while. Then we're going to have months of PT, but I think at the other end, you're going to be just fine. And you look and you say, I don't know, doc, I feel great. I don't think this is broken, actually. And he says, oh, it's broken. I don't know, doctor. I mean, I'm feel- what I feel inside, I don't feel anything. I think it's fine. And he's like, your arm is at a right angle right now where it's not supposed to be a right angle, okay? It's broken. You just have to accept it. There are times in life where all of us would agree there is reality. It is objective. And to persist as if we can change reality is insanity. It's delusional. So it's part of us that knows truth is objective, it's external, we submit to it. But then we turn right around, and in another part of our life, we're convinced that truth is subjective. And we say things like, 
Just look inside and find your own truth. Live out your own truth. We say, I don't know, I'm dating this person. Is this the person I should marry? Or is this the person I should stay with? Or is this, you know, I'm trying to figure out this relationship. Am I really in love with this person? And then what our culture says is, look inside to your heart. Or we say, I've got this big life decision. I don't know what I should do. Should I do this or should I do this? And what our culture says is, well, just look inside and you'll know what to do. Or, or we say, I've got these hopes and dreams that I'm trying to believe in. Well, don't give up on what you believe inside and, 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 and find someone that can help you actualize yourself on the inside. Or don't let anything else define who you are. You define yourself. You look inside and define yourself. And so we have this whole other side of us that we're convinced truth is subjective. We look inside and, and, and we let truth submit to us. But what does the Bible say about that tension? What it says is actually kind of logical. It says that God, the inventor of everything, is the source of truth. So it is objectively fixed, and we must submit to it. So even the most personal things in our life, like finding our self-identity, you say, man, you're not saying I should let someone else decide for me who I am. Well, you certainly shouldn't do that unless it's God who invented you. He has rights over defining who you are. In fact, he has the best perspective of defining who we are. Truth is, what the Bible says is truth is not something subjective we look inside for. Truth is something objective, it's external, we submit to it. And so what does then truth say? What does God's truth in the Bible say then about the nature of God? Let's look at this encounter that Isaiah has. We're looking at Isaiah chapter six. We're gonna start in verse one. Here's what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now before we go any further and see how this is about to play out, let's just kind of get our bearings. What's happening here? It's significant that Isaiah tells us the year that this happened. That's not just a detail. It's the year King Uzziah died. Now I want you to imagine what that throws this kingdom into. This King Uzziah had been ruling for many, many decades. So most of the people alive in this kingdom had only known King Uzziah as the king. So when a new ruler is stepping in, I mean, that's vulnerable. That's scary. What's that king going to be like? Is he going to be a good king, a bad king, a wise king, a foolish king? Is he going to be reckless, oppressive, violent? Is he going to help us continue to grow as a kingdom? Is he going to cause decline? I mean, when there is a turnover of leadership, it's vulnerable. What's going to happen with the king's kids? Is there going to be a power grab? Is there going to be revolt or mutiny? Is there going to be violence throughout the streets? I mean, what's going to happen? The kingdom is, is in its, this vulnerable moment. It's insecure. But that's not the only thing that's happening in this season. Within this couple years before this happens, the Assyrians have just risen to world dominance, and they have just started attacking Israel. So the most fearsome empire in, in the world at this time is starting to attack their cities and threatening to take them into exile. So here's what you have. In this year, you have insecurity and vulnerability on the inside, and you've got a threat and danger on the outside. 
And it is in that moment that Isaiah, the prophet, has a vision. He experienced something that felt very, felt so real as if he was actually there. God gave him a vision. And that vision was of God seated on the throne. He finds himself standing in the presence of God in this vision. So here's the idea. No matter how difficult the circumstances were on the world, Isaiah sees who's still sitting on the throne. Watch what happens next. Let's pick it up in verse two. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now to really appreciate this here, he sees this, uh, this throne, he sees God seated on the throne, and he sees these angels. To really appreciate this, um, the, these angels are called seraphim. You've got to understand how the Bible describes angels. There's typically two different types of angels that the Bible describes. A cherub or cherubim and a seraph or seraphim. Those are two types of angels. And to uh, understand um, this passage, to appreciate other passages that talk about angels, we really have to deprogram what our brains think of when we think of angels in our culture. Because if I say the word cherub, what probably just entered into your mind was a chubby little baby with wings flying around that appears at Valentine's Day time, okay, and shoots people with a little arrow, okay? Like, that's what we think of when we think of a cherub or the plural cherubim. And here we've got a, a seraph or seraphim which is the plural for that. We've got, to, we've got to reprogram our thinking. That view of angels came about a couple hundred years ago in, in paintings. That's not in the Bible, okay? Maybe the way you envision an angel is this graceful woman in a long flowing choir robe about to do like a graceful like dance or ballet or something. That's not how the Bible describes angels. How angels are described are the hosts of heaven. And hosts does not mean people preparing for a dinner party. The hosts of heaven literally means the armies of heaven. There's a reason why pretty much every time these beings that God created, they're creatures that God created in the heavenly realm, and sometimes he sends them into this world. There's a reason why, why when one of these angels appears to a human in the Bible, the first things out of their mouth is almost always, don't be afraid. Imagine being one of those angels, and every time you have to talk to one of these humans, you have to start with, okay, don't freak out. Okay, here we go again. I'll wait. I'll wait till you're, you're over it, okay? Why? Because these are unbelievably powerful beings. We just talked about a few weeks ago, generations after this, when the Assyrians are at full strength, they're attacking Jerusalem, and God sends one angel against the most terrifying, powerful army in the world at the time. He sends one angel into their midst, and one angel kills 
185,000 Assyrians. And they they retreat back to Nineveh. These beings are unbelievably powerful. They're the armies of heaven. And here's how the seraph is described, the seraphim. They have six wings. With two wings, they're flying above the throne of God. With two wings, they're covering their feet. And with two wings, they're covering their faces. In other words, as powerful as these beings are, they do not dare look upon God on the throne. And then they speak. And did you notice what happens when they spoke? When one seraph spoke, the foundations of the whole room start shaking. A few years ago, um, Rebecca and I were sitting on the couch watching some TV. We just we put the kids to bed. We were about to, to go to bed ourselves, and we're sitting there watching TV, and all of a sudden, I just felt this, like, rumbling, and all of a sudden, the, like, it got, like, stronger and stronger. All the glass panes, like, start shaking, like, in the, in the windows, and I'm like, what in the world is that? And it kind of got stronger, and then all of a sudden, it, like, stopped and disappeared. I'm like, was that an earthquake? I didn't think we had earthquakes down here. Like, what, what was that? And the next morning, I read the news, and I found out what had happened. There was, Air Force One was landing in Miami at the time, uh, late in the evening, and there was a small plane landing at one of the executive airports, and when the control tower asked it to identify itself, it didn't give any response and wasn't identifying itself. So out of Homestead Air Base, some fighter jets come screaming across the Everglades to intercept it. Now, luckily for that little plane, it eventually identified itself, and so it didn't get whatever happens to those planes happen. It didn't happen, and it landed, okay? And, but here's what I do know is I'm sitting on the couch, like, I don't know, dozens of miles, maybe 100 miles away from these jets, and they're, they are such an impressive, one of the greatest vehicles, most powerful vehicles humanity has ever invented, and they're going screaming through the air, um, maybe dozens, maybe 100 miles away, and I'm on my couch feeling it shake me on the inside. Like, I don't know if you've ever been at the Air and Sea show down on the beach, but every now and then, they'll bring a fighter jet low enough that it goes by and you can feel it on the inside. And as they go by, like, everyone's umbrellas go up in the air. And sometimes, like, even, like, the car alarms just start going off at the meters outside the beach. Why? Because it's sending a rumble through it as it's going through the air at incredible speeds. They're so powerful. Well, I want you to see what happens. This angel, it's not doing anything fancy. It speaks, and everything shakes. What does it say? It says this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. It starts out three times saying this word holy. What does the word holy mean? It essentially means set apart. In other words, it's declaring three times, saying God is perfectly set apart. He is perfectly something other than everything else. There's God and then there's everything else that God made. He is perfectly set apart and he is holy. He is perfectly good and pure and defines what goodness is for the universe. God is perfect. He is the Lord. He is God and he is almighty. And then they say the earth is full of his glory. 
meaning every single particle on this small rock that we live on exists to brag on the one who invented it. The earth is full of his glory. It all exists to bring the maker glory. And it says when they say that, not only does the foundations shake, but it says smoke fills the room. Now what's going on here with smoke? I think what's happening here is that Isaiah is feeling enveloped by the tangible presence of God. Often how the presence of God is described in the Old Testament is like smoke or like a cloud. That doesn't mean that God is a cloud, but it's the way that they're describing what it must feel like when God allows his presence to wrap around someone tangibly, palpably. Maybe it's just tingling on all of your cells as every single cell in your body is acknowledging the presence of its inventor. Smoke fills the room. Now what must that be like to be Isaiah in that moment? Seeing these mighty angels not even dare look at God. Well, he tells you what it was like. Let's look at verse five. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's instructive for us to just stop and look what he's saying here, because he's having an experience that it's hard for us to even imagine. He starts by saying, woe is me. Now this word woe is a word that the prophets use all through the, uh, through the Old Testament. And it's a phrase that they're saying when they're about to pronounce judgment on someone. So they might say something like, woe to you, Babylon. Woe to you, Nineveh. Woe to you, Jerusalem. Or even Jesus said, woe to you, Pharisees. It's something a prophet says when judgment is coming. But who does Isaiah pronounce a woe on? Himself. Woe to me. I'm about to be judged. I'm about to face judgment. Woe to me. He says, I am lost. Now, translators do different things with this Hebrew word for lost. They sometimes say like this, I'm lost. Sometimes they say, I am undone. I am dead. The idea in the ancient Hebrew is, woe is me, I am about to cease. Not, I'm going to die and you're going to see my dead body here. I am about to no longer be here. Molecules disappearing, disintegrating, vaporizing. I am about to cease to be. Now, why would he have that that reaction? I am about to cease to be in existence. Why would he have that? Because can you imagine how intimidating and overwhelming it would be to actually be standing face to face with the one who thought you up? And he's standing before that one. The one who caused your existence What does the Bible say about about who God is? Well, when Moses was, uh, earlier in the Old Testament, when Moses was gonna go to Pharaoh 
to ask Pharaoh to let God's people go. When he was about to go stand before Pharaoh, Moses said, God, who should I say which God is sending me? Because they believe in a lot of gods, and they're going to ask me. And he said, give them this name. Tell them, I am sent you. What kind of name is I am? He's saying, tell them the one who exists is sending you. And he's not just meaning, I exist, Egypt, and your gods don't. He's basically saying, I am the one who fundamentally exists. Everything else exists is dependent on me for its existence. I am the one who exists, and out of me, everything else is dependent on their existence. In other words, God is saying by calling himself I am, he's saying he is more real than you are. We sometimes say, well, you know, maybe you've wrestled with, well, I wonder if God is real or not. What this is saying is his existence and the reality of God is more real than us because our reality depends on him. In fact, it's more than just he's our creator. Look at what it says in Colossians. Let me just read this to you. Look at these verses. It describes God like this. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And we say, okay, got it. He's the creator. Check. It's this next part that I think we sometimes forget. Look what it says. And he is before all things, and in him all things, what does it say? Hold together. Do you realize what that's saying? That's saying Isaiah is standing before the one who not only invented him, caused him to exist, but Isaiah is standing before the one who is keeping him existing. So in other words, it's like this. You and I, we are not self-existent, we didn't bring ourselves about, we didn't cause ourselves to exist, but it's more than that. You and I are not self-sustaining. We don't keep ourselves existing. We're not self-sustaining. Now you might be saying, well, I don't know, man. I mean, like, I work out, you know. I, I have a good diet. I mean, I go to that spinning class, okay. I mean, I take good care of myself. I mean, that's great. You absolutely should do that. That's taking good care of your body, which is a gift. What this is saying is the only reason your body arrived to spinning class intact is that God intentionally kept you in existence. In other words, for you and I to finish this service still in existence is because God is holding us in existence. And if he chose to do this, we're gone. Can you sit in that vulnerability for a second? Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want, I want everyone to go ahead and I want you to find your pulse. Go ahead and find your pulse. I want you to feel that. Someone in here is like, oh my gosh, I can't find it. What's happening? Okay, just relax, okay? I'm sure it's there, okay. I want you to feel your pulse, and I want you to feel each beat. And I just want you to feel the tension and vulnerability as you wait for the next beat. In between those beats, just enter into that vulnerability. Joy is the only reason 
another beat is coming is because he's intentionally holding your heart together. What Isaiah is realizing is every second he stands there in God's presence is an act of mercy that God is keeping him alive. Why? Because he said, not only is he standing before the one who is in existence, but he says, woe is me, I am undone, I am about to, be, I'm about to cease, I am lost. And then he says, I am a man of unclean lips. A lot of times the ancients, a lot of times in the, and also in the Old Testament and New Testament, one part is symbolic of the whole. So he's picking his lips to represent his whole self. He is unclean. Now he's picking his lips to represent that. Why his lips? Because the one, maybe it's because the one he's standing before, out of God's lips, everything came into existence. Out of those lips, existence happened. And that's reminding him of how far short the things that come out of his lips are. He's realizing, he's standing there, and here's what he's realizing, everything simultaneously, as the presence of God is tangibly, palpably wrapping around him, as he's standing face to face with his creator, with the one who's actually sustaining his existence. He's standing face to face with Almighty God, and he's realizing this being who is holy, he's standing before, and his life is not holy. He's standing before the one that has designed everything to bring him glory and he realizes that he has not brought him glory perfectly with his life. He's realizing that this is a God that didn't just, God didn't just wind up the universe like a wind-up toy saying, let's just, well, let's see what happens. He made the earth, he made the universe and he's holding it all into existence Actively, he's, he's in the details of our molecules. That means he's in the details of our life. That means he's aware of the day-to-day of our life. That means every single part of our life is designed to bring him glory along with every other particle of this planet and of the universe. And Isaiah is realizing how far short he falls compared to this holy God. So not only is he intimidated to stand, just awestruck to stand before the awesome creator of everything. He's standing before the one who's sustaining him in existence and he's just realized he's given this being reason to cease him from existing. He's given him reason to pronounce judgment on him because of his unholiness in his life. He says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord. Can you hear the terror in his voice? Sometimes we're tempted to say, you know, it'd be just so much easier with God if he could just appear. You know, then I would just like, I could just believe in him. I mean, make it so much easier. Do you know why he doesn't appear? So that you don't die. It's an act of mercy. The fact that he operates through the lenses of faith is in and of itself an act of mercy. What do we learn about God from this text? You know, it, 
it's real simple and sometimes we just need a reminder of something that is so obvious. It's very simply this. God is the center of the universe. See that part we get, you know, it's the second part that we often don't remember. God is the center of the universe. I am not. That's the part I need to be reminded of. There's only one king. There's only one on the throne. There's only one that all the glory from the universe is due towards, that is deserving of all the credit, all the glory. There is only one king, one creator, one maker of everything. The one who caused everything to exist and is holding everything into existence. There is only one, it is God. Everything in the universe orbits and revolves around him, not me. My family doesn't revolve around meeting my needs. My friends don't revolve around what I get out of the relationship. My workplace doesn't revolve around me. My career doesn't revolve around making me successful. My life goals do not revolve around me getting what I want. My life itself does not revolve around me. It, like everything else in the universe, revolves around Almighty God. And that is as it should be. But here's the challenge. So often we might say, yeah, I believe in God. In fact, you know, most of South Florida statistically says that they believe in God. But here's how this plays out. We say so often we believe in God. We might say that theologically speaking, we are theists. We are theologically theists. But so often, practically atheists. We believe in God, but so often we do not actually let that belief loose in our life. We believe in God, but we don't actually say, what actually then does that mean about my life? We believe in God, but then we, we say, yes, he is you know, God over all the universe. And so often we don't make him the God over our life. He's on the throne over all that it is, but so often there's parts of our life where he is not on the throne. We can believe in God and be practical atheists. But he is the center of the universe and the center of our lives. Everything revolves not about making us happy, but about bringing him glory. So Christian, how is that playing out in your life? Some of you came in here today and you felt like Isaiah a little bit. You say, man, you should see the things I'm navigating through and dodging. You should see the, the immense terrifying obstacles I'm trying not to crash into. It's this issue in my marriage, this issue in my home, this health issue, this financial issue, this career issue. I've got this issue in one of my relationships. You say, I've got these huge, I've got, I've got the, the vulnerability on the inside and the threat on the outside. Can you be encouraged today? It doesn't matter what's happening in your circumstances. Nothing can change that God is on the throne. He has your life just like every other part of the universe safely in your hands. So you know where worry and anxiety comes from? Forgetting that you were never in control to begin with.
rest. That God is always on the throne and nothing takes him off the throne. And maybe today's the day you draw a line in the sand and say, I am going to confess my doubts and my anxiety and my fears and my insecurity. I am going to confess that to God today and remind myself he is on the throne, just as it should be. But maybe for you today, it's not about the anxiety and the worry. Maybe there's a part of your life where if you are being honest today, you're saying, look, on this part of my life, yes, I'm doing it God's way. He's on the throne. But, you know, this is just my part, okay? I'm just going to do this. And I know that the Bible says, you know, one thing. But for me in my life, this is just working for me. The way I'm handling this relationship, that's just how I want to handle it. And that's what seems right to me. Or that's the only way that you can find a relationship. Or the only way you can find love. Or the only way that you can get ahead in your career. And, you know, I, I think God's going to forgive me. I, I'm just, this is how I'm going to run my life. How I'm going to do things with my life. And the honest reality is there's a part of your life that hasn't been brought into submission to Almighty God, please draw the line in the sand today. You and I may not have had the actual encounter that Isaiah has had, but that doesn't make the reality of who Isaiah stood face to face any less true. That is who God is. Do we understand who we're dealing with? Please bring every part of your life under submission to God. Surrender that today. Draw a line in the sand and say, God, I'm giving this to you. I am going to put you on the throne and I'm going to stop dethroning you in this area of my life. Turn from that. That is sin. The Bible says repent, not, don't continue going this way. Turn back to him. He is the inventor of all that, it, that is. I'm pretty sure he knows how to run your life better than you do. Run to him. But maybe you're here and you say, look, my struggle is, I'm not even sure I believe in God. And if that's where you're at, I'm so glad that you are on this journey with us. I hope you stay on this journey, not because we have all the answers, but because we just love journeying with people who want to get to know more about God. But if that's where you're at, I would encourage you to take a step of faith today. Because he is the I am. Our belief in him, whether we believe or not, doesn't suddenly burst him into existence. He exists. Will we surrender to him or not? I want to, maybe you're here saying, look, the way you've, you've def talked about God, I mean, it's so fearsome. I mean, sounds scary. Well, here's the rest of the story. I want to close with these last two verses in Isaiah chapter six. Here's what happened next to Isaiah. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. See, something happens here very interesting. What um, Isaiah should have done, what the pattern in the Old Testament was, if you were going to enter into the presence of God, you came with something you brought to the altar. You came with a sacrifice that you brought to the altar, altar hoping it would atone for your sins. 
But God flips that equation on its head here with Isaiah. And God brings something from the altar to him. And he reaches out and touches him. Isaiah is just there in stunned humiliation. And God reaches out to him and cleanses him. He touches his lips and symbolically cleansing all of him with something from the altar, washing him clean. And that is what is being offered to you. The great story of what this almighty God has done for you is not that he's waiting for you to come to him and come to the altar with your offering, with the best you can do, with your holiness, with your godliness, with your right living, with your good works, with your religion. He's not waiting for you to come to him. He has come to you. Almighty God, enter into his creation, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he died on the cross to pay and atone for your sin so that all of your guilt can be taken away. This almighty God came to you. And he rose again from the dead after dying on the cross, rose again from the dead, defeating death itself. That's what's offered to you. He's reaching out to touch your life today. You just have to accept that. That's who this God is. He's a God, yes, he's almighty, but he wants to become your father and he wants to wash away your sins. Would you take that step today? I want to end our time together by just taking a few moments in response. Would everyone just bow their heads and close their eyes in a moment of prayer? If you're watching online, take this moment to just bow your heads and, and bow your head and close your eyes. And let's just take this moment. I want to speak first to you Christians in the room. Is today a day where you need to draw a line in the sand? Take a quiet moment before Almighty God. Is there a sin he's wanting you to leave behind today? Are there fears he wants you to leave behind today? Are there worries he's saying leave behind today? Is there anxiety he wants you to leave behind today? And is he reminding you, believe that I am on the throne? So Christian, if that's you and you're feeling the almighty great I am tug on your heart saying, I want to do business with you today. I want you to draw a line in the sand and believe I'm on the throne and live out that I'm on the throne in a new way today. And if that's you, then here's what I want you to do with no one looking around. I want you to slip your hand in the air. If that's you, Christian, I want you to put your, hair and put your hand in the air and put it back down. I see it. Praise God. I see it. Amen. 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 Praise God. Amen. Amen. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I want to take that step and put my faith in Jesus and believe that I am reconciled to the Almighty One. I want to know today that I'm saved. I want to know today that all my sins are washed away. I want to know today that I'll spend eternity in heaven one day because of what Jesus did, not about what I do. I'm ready to take that step for the first time. And if that's you, you want to take that step today? With no one looking around, I want to just lead you in a prayer. You can take that step right now. So with no one looking around, just slip your hand in the air and put it back down. If you want to take that step and find salvation today, amen. Anyone else, you say, today is the day I want to find salvation. Praise God. Anybody else, say, that's me. If that was you, let me lead you in this prayer. Just silently pray this to God. Just say, God, I put you on the throne. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. I will follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org.
If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.